it's also systemic things that are happening in our society. Like our statistics and studies show that children of all races do better in fully integrated, well-funded public schools. And yet Mm -hmm. we're trying to separate the public schools so we can keep white kids learning Christian stuff and like in the rich schools that hurts everyone. There are people who say we don't have affordable health care or education in this country because of racism, which is what you were speaking of, right? There are certain white people that can't imagine paying to educate or keep black people healthy, so they hold the entire society back in their disgusting attempt to punish black people. I would also say that we're probably missing out on some of the greatest accomplishments and inventions and innovations by holding people back because of racism. Because I can remember so clearly sitting in the theater watching that movie Hidden Figures, which if, by the way, you haven't seen it, it's a story about these brilliant black women who were instrumental in landing a man on the moon. How many geniuses have we missed? How many problems could have been solved if we had allowed people to bring their full gifts to the table instead of making them sit in another room because of their color or honestly, quite frankly, their gender because women get marginalized all the time too. We're just missing out. And I feel like what you're trying to get us to understand with your work is that while we say we modern day liberal open-minded white people might not have specifically built this house of racism, we still live in it and we get the benefits from it. And it's actually, we get harmed from it too. So it's essential that we take ownership and responsibility for what's happening in the house. If we're just thinking that racism is done by those bad white people over there, we're missing the point. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. We're living in an incredibly strange time in America, a time if you're paying attention, you can see that everything we've counted on, from democracy and the rule of law, to freedom of movement, to religion, to our very own bodily autonomy, are all on shaky ground. So it's essential that those of us who understand this threat come together and rise above our differences, and unite to fight back those dark forces that would take our country down the road to authoritarianism, to white Christian nationalism, and, depending on who our leader is, to a dictatorship or an oligarchy. But in order to come together, in order to do this work that needs to be done, we have to address our personal differences. We essentially have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, which is why I've asked Tony Neighbors to join us today. Tony is the owner and principal consultant of Racial Equity Insights, Prior to founding his company, he was actually the first person in the United States to ever hold the title of Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. So this man is both ahead of his time, and if the Republicans in Project 2025 have anything to say about it, a man living in the past. Tony has over 20 years of experience working in DEI, in justice and advocacy work. His passion is moving people and organizations from hesitancy about racial equity to confidence as they learn how to be effective, action-oriented allies. I was initially drawn to Tony's work through a social media post where he was talking about how to respond to racist comments. It was exactly the kind of common sense approach that I attempt to bring to my own work, an accessible way of talking to people so they don't feel too overwhelmed as they try and learn new things. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, anti-racist teacher, coach, and trainer, Tony Neighbors. Welcome, Tony. Thank you. Thank you. It is so great to be here. I appreciate uh, being able to spend some time with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for joining me. I was just saying in the introduction that I found you from a post that you did when you were giving advice about what to say when someone says something racist. And I just thought, 
A, it's just such good advice. And it was given with such generosity and open-mindedness. And also that so much of the language that you were using is something that any of us could use, not only when we're speaking to someone who's saying something racist, but when we're speaking to someone who's saying something ignorant. And I was like, who is this guy? Because this is really great stuff. Yeah, so that's just really cool to hear that you found me through this wild thing called, you know, internet, social media and whatnot. And uh, yeah, I was very surprised just to find out how many people are really passionate about justice and anti-racism. And it's really cool to be able to share in that way. You just have such amazing suggestions. Like you say things like someone says something racist or something ignorant and you've said, that's actually not true. Are you open to me telling you why? And I felt like that's such a generous way of saying you're wrong. Let me educate you, right? You also have one that I use a lot with right-wing news readers and right-wing news watchers, which is just to be curious, right? You say, where did you get that idea from? And I often say, oh, really? Where'd you hear that? And I find that most of the time, people have no idea where their bias or opinion comes from. They have no source. They have no proof. And you don't necessarily even need to beat people over the head with their lack of knowledge or the fact that they're wrong. You just need to have them take a moment to realize that they don't really know what they're talking about. And then that also opens the conversation to continue. Do you find that? Yeah, I mean, that's really, I'd say that's a core to my approach and a core to who I view as like the audience that I'm trying to connect with. There are plenty of people out there who are not interested in learning. They've got their perspectives, they're locked in, they do not care what you say. Um, and I don't, I don't spend my time really kind of having back and forth with people that are not interested in learning. But a lot of times people just haven't considered that there can be another way. And it's really powerful to, you know, as you said, to get someone to sort of take a step, take a beat. So it's like, oh, where, where did I get that from? Why do I believe that? And, then, you know, people can actually see something new. That's really exciting. It is really exciting. I often do it to my father. He says random things. And I'm like, where'd you hear that? And he's like, um, you know, and he'll have to go back because it's definitely some right wing newspaper. And uh, and then I'm like, I actually don't think that's true. We should probably look that up. And he's like. Okay. And we have changed so many of his like absolutely sure opinions based on just that sort of sense of curiosity and open-mindedness. I also think it's interesting because in the original post I found you in, you also had stronger statements to really hit back at people, but in a non sort of aggressive way, but definitely in a firm way. You said, don't say that kind of thing around me, which I think is a great way to say, I'm not a safe space for that kind of language, that kind of talk, and you can't get away with that kind of bullshit here. And I I think that's a great way of saying it. Like, don't say that kind of thing around me. I think that's wonderful. I also think you, you say, I'm having a strong reaction to that, and I'm going to tell you why. I think it's nice to have a way to be various levels of confrontational or unaccepting of the unacceptable. But I feel like you are teaching people to do that when they go low, we go high. And I think that's important. I think it's an important way to talk to people that you're saying, hey, I'm not cool with that. Don't say that. But it's not in a like aggressive way that's going to just shut down the conversation. It's in a way that makes the person go like, oh, Honestly, like at the core, another thing at the core of my approach and the core of my work is being strategic and wanting to be effective, right? I think that especially in those situations where somebody just says something that is, you know, out of left field, that's offensive, that's racist, that's whatever. 
Um, I think there can be two different strategies, right? Like there can be a strategy where it's like this person is open. I can I, I have enough relationship to know that they're open. So let me try to you know reshape this conversation so they can learn something and hopefully grow, right? Like that can be one strategy. But then you know as I mentioned, sometimes we can have the insight that this is not a situation where I'm going to be able to transform this person's perspective. So instead, let me focus on harm reduction. So, you know, I'm not necessarily going to change your mind, but I am going to get in the way of this just terrible, awful, horrible stuff you're saying. Like, you're not going to do that around me. That's not cool. Yeah, I'm not a safe space for your racism. I think that's important. And I also think that actually happens a lot to people who look like me because I'm in circles of people who think it's fine to say things like that around me. It's just a joke and it doesn't really, and it's not real. They might not say that same thing around you because they don't think of themselves as being racist, but they might say something around me. And I think it's important for people like me to be like, oh, don't say that stuff around me. You know what I mean? Because then they're like, oh, shoot, I shouldn't have. And it also makes them think about what they're saying. Finally, I love that you have a statement that says, I don't think you meant it that way, but what you said was actually racist and there might be a better way to phrase that. And I think that one is so good because it's a correction where the other person still has to do the work and they still have to address their own behavior and it doesn't force you into the role of being a scold or a teacher. And I feel like all of your work is just filled with helpful tools like that that could really help all of us kind of navigate our way through this world that we really hope to make better. So tell me about your work. How did you get into it? So, you know, again, my, my organization is called Racial Equity Insights. And the I'll say what, where I started was primarily geared towards businesses, organizations, nonprofits, governments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, who are trying to genuinely integrate a commitment to racial equity into their, their DNA, like not just crossing off, you know, boxes, not just going through the motions, not just good PR, but how can we really integrate this in a transformational and sustainable way? So that was really where this started. Um, and I've been doing this type of work for nearly 20 years now. So teaching, training, mentoring, facilitating, I've been doing this type of work for a really long time. And then it got to a point where I realized I needed to take my own passion and experience for this work more seriously. Like I need to really honor that and get organized. And that's when I decided to start this as a business. Um, and then I you know, basically decided, hey, I think social media could be a good place just for more people to hear about what I do and how I think about this stuff. And I was absolutely stunned by the number of individuals not even having to do with the workplace that just really resonated with how I talk about this stuff. Absolutely shocked. You know, I, I, had, I had a friend that told me that I should start a TikTok. Um, and I, I didn't know anything about TikTok. Like, I'm not doing dancing. Like, what's, you know, what's that about? <laughs> but they said, hey, you should put some things on TikTok. Uh, and I started putting things on TikTok. And I, within, gosh, maybe two or three months, I was at 100,000 followers. Mind-blowing stuff, right? Um, and then eventually, you know, Instagram caught up too. Um, now, you know, get a couple of really good communities out there. Uh, so just really encouraging to see the number of people who care about this stuff and who desire to not just cheer, not to sort of be a cheerleader on the sidelines for racial equity, but actually want the tools and the knowledge and the strategies to get in the game and actually make a real change in whatever their sphere of influence might be. 
want you to know, I started exactly the same way. My husband was like, I swear to God, if you follow me around the house for one more second with all these rants, like, uh, I love you and I support you, but like, please put that somewhere else. And I started on TikTok and I said the same thing. I was like, I'm not a dancing teenager. I don't know what I'm doing. And honestly, it gives me so much hope, like you're saying, because there are so many people out there who, in my case, want to know more about the world, but don't have the time to like be, you know, reading 700 newspapers a day and doing all the stuff that I do. And I can help right. them do that. And you're out here doing the work to help people make this world a more anti-racist place to have people doing the actions of anti-racism work to make this world more inclusive for everyone, which honestly will serve us all. So you're out here, you're doing classes and speeches and workshops. And like you said, you started by working with groups and organizations and companies. And I know you've worked with everyone from the Seattle Housing Authority and conferences like Step Up and Edge of Amazing to like Harvard Law and Montessori schools. Like these are, you're really out here doing the work of people who really care. And I know that you also have courses, right? Courses for people like us that we can take, like the anti-racist jumpstarter guide and developing your anti-racist heart and microaggressions, death by a thousand cuts, which I think is great. Tell me a little bit about those programs. If someone took an e-course with you, what, what would they be getting out of that? Yeah. And so um, my approach to the e-courses is I really want to give people tools that can lead them down the rabbit hole of their journey. And so something that I run into a lot, um, I'd say especially when I'm working with businesses, but even with just individual people that I might have conversations with, is people want me to, you know, hey, I support this. I care about it. Tell me what to do. Like, just tell me, hey, tell me the five steps I need to take. Um, and, we, you know, you can't do effective human rights or justice work by just following somebody's manual in terms of like, do this exact prescription. Like, it doesn't work that way to be effective. So instead, I want to give people the tools and maybe some new mental frameworks, maybe some new ways of even thinking about some of this stuff um, to be able to lead them down the rabbit holes that are relevant to their context. Because, you know, there's all, you know, all kinds of different people of different backgrounds, different races, maybe from different cities and countries. Uh, you know, people from people globally are interacting with my stuff and you know, racism in the U.S. is going to look very different than racism in Australia, which will look very different than racism in, you know, maybe like a place like South Africa. Um, like this is a global thing that's happening. But we, you know, we we need to be able to get the foundation to make an impact in our actual kind of location or, or sphere of influence. And so that's really what my aim is with all of these sort of subjects is, hey, I need you to understand conceptually what this stuff means and what it is. I need you to understand what it looks like to take action to fix this stuff or to even fix your own stuff. Uh, Cause that's a really, really big piece that a lot of people miss uh, is our own junk that gets in the way of our ability to be effective in anti-racism work. Um, and then I want people to be able to launch pad off of that so they can do the work in whatever the areas might be. And as you've said in our conversations that we've had and in the work that I'm looking at that you do, this work isn't just for white people, right? It's for everyone. It's for white people, black people, indigenous people, people of color. It's work for people who have been raised in white supremacist systems. And it's work we kind of all have to be doing. And I hope in the vein of being a teacher and a coach, if I say something in our conversation today that's cringy or white fragility-esque, I hope you'll correct me because as you say, embarrassment is a good teacher and we have to be open to being embarrassed and making mistakes if we're gonna actually make changes. 
I, I appreciate you saying so, that. If something comes up, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. Yeah, no, please, please. I like. <laughs> we're all learning, right? We're all students. We're all trying to do better. Um, clearly, sure. this work is deeply important, especially with DEI on the chopping block everywhere in America right now. I feel like we're just getting it here. We're just starting to really understand it and do the work and start making some changes. And you have an entire political party in 2024 that wants to get rid of everything DEI, including the words diversity, equity, and inclusion from anything the government puts out. They don't even want the words being written down. So we need to be really careful about being deliberate in our our hope for actual diversity and equity and inclusion, because there are people out there that really would rather it not exist at all. Yeah, no, it's absolutely, um, I mean, it's, it's the modern day book burning. Um, absolutely. And I think for me, as someone who is so passionate about language and words and to have language that is created for liberation to be sort of remixed and transformed and alienated to mean something that is threatening and awful and evil and you know all the dog whistle type stuff, you know, it, it pisses me off. Like it really upsets me that that happens. Um, and often, you know, those of us who are trying to work and champion for liberty, like we then change our language because you know of what the right and what you know enemies of justice are. Uh, like we we kind of kind of go with that flow sometimes. It's like oh gosh, like you know that's rough. You know DEI being a thing, the word woke being a thing. Uh, you know there's a, well, a couple of years ago when there's this assault on critical race theory. Like these are liberation frameworks. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean, which is exactly why we need your work, honestly, and exactly why I'm so drawn to it. Because if this is the way half the country or a third of the country or a third of one party is going to behave, then the rest of us have to work harder to make a difference. One of the things you've said in your work is that individualism is the enemy of anti-racism. It's the individualistic mindset that if someone points out racist behaviors and racist systems, there will always be usually some white person with good intentions or not that responds by saying, I don't do those behaviors or I didn't create that system. It's not me, which is kind of, as you pointed out, just a variation on not all white people, but it's not very helpful to the cause. It's the idea of Centering the problem around ourselves, this I didn't do it mentality. It's that individualism and then that individualism sort of perpetrated by multiple people. So thousands of people, millions of people, I didn't do this, that ultimately empowers systemic racism because we're all removing ourselves from the problem and thus removing ourselves from seeing or helping solve the problem. Do you want to speak a little bit to that individualism issue that causes us to not fix things? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I think it's very much centered on this desire for people to view us positively, basically. Like we want people to look upon us favorably. We don't want people to see us as harmful. We don't want people to see us as racist, like all that kind of stuff. And it's I, that's one of the, like a, when I'm doing classes, I'll often at the beginning, like spend some time defining language so we can actually have a shared understanding of some of the stuff and understanding the difference between racial prejudice and systemic racism is a really important thing. 
because, you know, maybe there are people, I mean, often people will say this and it, even the, the statement is disingenuous, but, you know, hey, I don't do this stuff. I don't, you know, I, I'm not right. Like whatever, like people have that mentality and they just sort of wash their hands of anything that's going on where oftentimes the impacts of systemic racism are significantly and multiplied more devastating than the sort of interpersonal interactions that we might have with people. Um, you know, systemic racism, we see that in almost every system in the US. We see this in education. We see this in, uh, you know, professional spaces and, you know, who has what sorts of positions uh, we see this in government, who are you know, the majority of our government leaders. We see this in you know criminal justice system where there are significant differences in how people are treated based on race and even in what their sentences look like for the same crimes based on race. Uh, you know, we see this in socioeconomics, like we see this all over the place. And I describe it as this escalator. It's like an escalator. Even if you aren't actively pushing it, uh, when you're white, you're still benefiting from it. Can I stop you for a second? Just because, you guys, this is such an amazing example, what Tony is talking about, and it is his idea, whether you are actively or intentionally pushing systemic racism, even if you're not, if you are white, you have to accept that you're benefiting from the system, even if you have personally done nothing to add to it. So what Tony's saying, and I, I really just want to hone in, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I want to hone in because it's so smart that this example is you're standing still on an escalator. You might not be actively doing anything, but you are standing on the thing that is moving you forward even without you trying. So as white people, we have to actively stop disassociating ourselves from racism and the harm it caused just because we're personally not doing it and realize that even if we're not feeding the system, we're in the system, right? We're on that escalator. And when we are dismissive of the problem because we want to separate ourselves from it, which I think is understandable, who wouldn't want to separate themselves from white supremacy, we're prioritizing our own feelings of self and our reputation and our identity above the actual problem. So we're yeah. not dismantling the escalator. We're just standing there saying, I'm, I didn't build the escalator. I'm just... I'm just quietly yeah. standing here on it. And that's the work you're trying to do. And I, I just wanted to hone in on that because I think that escalator analogy is so excellent. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, that, that's, such a, an important, that's such an important key uh, is that systemic racism doesn't require like this active, you know, burning hot rage and anger and hatred towards people based off of race. Um, it's just basically when, when we look at outcomes and when we can view that there are very clear racial stratifications and outcomes throughout society, uh, you know, there are likely some actors in that system that do have that burning hot rate. Like, you know, sure, there's some people there, but that is not a defining characteristic of systemic racism. You know, what is happening? How are people faring in society and why? Um, and that's where this curiosity piece comes to mind is when we see these things, we spot these patterns, we have to ask the question, why? And we can't just sort of settle with this idea that, oh, it's because this group is just, they do things better than this other group, or there's culture issues with like, we, we can't, that's just kind of a, that's a lazy assumption that people make that sort of allows us to let ourselves off the hook. Um, and then we start digging in and we realize, oh, there's this history that led to this, led to this, led to this. 
And even when this thing was made illegal, those ripple impacts still shot through history and still impact people today. You know, things like redlining and housing, for example. Um, you know, those things, we, when we start to understand those things, then hopefully it gives us a different sense of urgency and care and passion to try to help this stuff and try to, you know, help to change this stuff, I should say. I mean, the whole thing actually makes me think of a conversation uh, from The Daily Show when D.L. Healy was hosting. And he said that he doesn't think that most white people are actively racist, but it's more that they're not against the end goal of the racists, which is to keep white people on the top. And then he was saying, like, what incentives should white people have to make the kind of changes that are going to destabilize a world they already know works for them? And I thought it was such a thoughtful question. And then his guest, who was Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, answered by saying, one of the things we don't understand is that racism actually harms white people too. I mean, obviously it's not harming us at the level it's harming black people or indigenous people or people of color, but it's affecting us in ways that we don't even consider. And Dr. Kendi points out that there are white people who die at the hands of police violence all the time, but the issue of police violence is undermined because of racism. So the problem itself never gets solved. Like, yes, White people aren't dying at the same rate black and brown people are at the hands of police, but there are more people dying in America at the hands of police than any other country in the world, right? There are more white people incarcerated in this country than any other country in the world because we created a for-profit prison system set up to lock away black people and use their free labor. But we're not dealing with the problem because it's based in racism. More white people are struggling to vote because of the systems we put in place to stop black people from voting. So it's all connected. And I thought it was fascinating. Like, of course it is. That's systemic racism. That's actually literally what they were teaching in law schools with CRT, right? Like that was critical race theory. Like these big concept ideas of how the entire system has been set up in a certain way that it doesn't even matter if... If it wasn't set up to hurt you, it's still hurting you. And so yeah. everyone should want to dismantle it. You know, people watching and listening, you know, feel free to fact check me. I might be blanking on the president. I want to say it was, uh, gosh, was it Johnson? I think it was Johnson. Um, but he had like this great quote, like it is a very, you know, I'm not going to go and I'm not going to evaluate the president Johnson, but just, you know, very kind of complicated <laughs> president, I'll put it that way. Uh, but there was a quote that he said, it was, I'm going to paraphrase it. It was something along the lines of, you can tell the lowest white man that he's still better than a black person, then you can you can pick his own pockets and, you know, he'll be OK with it. You know, he'll actually empty his pockets for you. Um, so sort of definitely these sort of things that when, you know, whether it be people or kind of these bigger systems at play, if there's a perception that it is helping black people, then there is a lot of pushback to that. Um, there's actually a great book that gets into that pattern a lot. It's a book by Carol Anderson called White Rage. And it just really tracks this sort of thing that happens when black people are advancing in society or are, you know, figuring new things out or, are, you know, showing up in new places of influence. Um, but there is this sort of history of this backlash. Um, and, you know, the, it just, it's just an inch. It's a fascinating thing. Um, and I think there's the things that are systemic, like what you're talking about. Um, and then there's also this thing that happens you know, not to get not to get too esoteric, but there's something that I think happens kind of within us, like within our souls. Like there's this dehumanization, like racism dehumanizes all of us. 
um, whether that be that we are sort of being actively beaten down by this stuff, or if you know people who are made numb or even justify this stuff, like when you can see you know physical harm happening to people, when you can see you know this trend of unarmed black people gunned down by police, and then there's this automatic push to blame the person who was unarmed and died. Um, and to, you know, run smear campaigns from them in the news and, you know, oh, this was a troubled person. And, you know, it's, it's horrible. Like it, it dehumanizes all of us. And I think it just does really terrible things to our own sense of self and our own mental health as well. Without a doubt, there's no way it can't do harm to our mental health and our sense of self and our sense of humanity, you know. Yeah. But it's also like you said, it's it's also systemic things that are happening in our society, like. Our statistics and studies show that children of all races do better in fully integrated, well-funded public schools. And yet mm -hmm. we're trying to separate the public schools so we can keep white kids learning Christian stuff and like in the rich schools. That hurts everyone. There are people yeah. who say we don't have affordable health care or education in this country because of racism, which is what you were speaking of, right? There are certain white people that can't imagine paying to educate or keep black people healthy. So they hold the entire society back in their disgusting attempt to punish black people. I would also say that we're probably missing out on some of the greatest accomplishments and inventions and innovations by holding people back because of racism. Because I can remember so clearly sitting in the theater watching that movie Hidden Figures, which if, by the way, you haven't seen it, it's a story about these brilliant black women who were instrumental in landing a man on the moon. How many geniuses have we missed? How many problems could have been solved if we had allowed people to bring their full gifts to the table instead of making them sit in another room because of their color or honestly, quite frankly, their gender because women get marginalized all the time too. We're just missing out. And I feel like what you're trying to get us to understand with your work is that while we say we modern day liberal open-minded white people might not have specifically built this house of racism, we still live in it and we get the benefits from it. And it's actually, we get harmed from it too. So it's essential that we take ownership and responsibility for what's happening in the house. If we're just thinking that racism is done by those bad white people over there, we're missing the point. Yeah, no, that's, that's powerfully and very well stated. Um, you know, the example that you were talking about in the end, like talking about, you know, white women, for example, um, like they're, they're, they're like affirmative action. Like that's another one of these sort of big kind of, uh, I guess I'd say societally controversial ideas when really, you know, it shouldn't be when we understand what it is. Um, but, you know, there's like this, this very, this, this kind of conservative push against affirmative action and, you know, people need to earn their stuff and it's giving people all these benefits. You know, it's and again, it's usually these ideas about black, and, you know, black and brown people. Um, but then when you actually dig into the statistics, maybe you know this, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Do you know who the number one uh, beneficiaries of affirmative action are? No. White women. <laughs> <laughs> so in the U.S., the number no, one beneficiaries seriously? of affirmative action are white women, even though the program was specifically created to bridge racial gaps. <laughs> And then, you know, there's a number of white women who, you know, push back on it. Well, the thing about affirmative action that's so interesting is that conceptually, you can make yourself understand both sides of an issue, right? You can be like, well, shouldn't the people who got the best grades and did the, you know, best, in, should they not get the, 
the position, you're like, but that's not how it works. Like the beauty of affirmative action in many ways is that they go out into communities and find the children that would never have applied to some of these top schools and top colleges, and they give them the opportunity to get in the mix. I mean, if anything, we should be getting rid of legacy admissions because those are people that literally their their parents bought a, a wing or their parents went there and their granddad went there and Harvard's was at the beginning of, you know, Columbia was here before America even started. <laughs> and these schools have been around for a long time. And so, of course, yeah. the people that went there before, a lot of them were white men. And then their family goes and then their family goes and then their family goes. Th- that feels deeply unfair to go out and find a Joy Reid or a Katanji Brown Jackson or somebody that's like just an extraordinary person that would never know to come to the school otherwise that feels an it's an affirmative choice and it sadly doesn't surprise me that it's white women that ended up benefiting the most from that but i will say women have also been held back so god bless us let us in the door um we got stuff to say um as a white woman i'm like yeah yes but like uh, mm-hmm. affirmative action actually does have so much um necessary pull to get some of these geniuses that we would never otherwise find and help them through higher education i mean i've got my own stories about what we need to do about higher education, but that's a different uh, podcast for a different time. So let's come back to where we are. You have a great metaphor that I want you to explain to people about Captain America and the Winter Soldier. And you guys know that movie, Captain America and the Winter Soldier, um, and how when white people stop doing active anti-racism work, we become what you call sleeper agents for white supremacy. And I find it a striking metaphor. Would you mind expanding on that for us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you anytime I can I can I can bridge superheroes with anti-racism work, like that's my that's my happy place. <laughs> Politics Girl has a new sponsor and it's for my doggo. If you guys don't know, I am obsessed with my dog. His name is Chips and he is the best boy in the world, and I know you all think your dogs are the best dogs, and I'm sure they are, but you guys, Chips which is why I'm so excited that Sundays for Dogs approached us. I've heard nothing but great things about Sundays. Sundays for Dogs is fresh dog food made from a short list of human-grade ingredients. It was co-founded by Dr. Tori Waxman, a practicing veterinarian who tests and formulates every version of each recipe. Sundays contains 90% meat, 10% superfoods, and 0% synthetic nutrients or artificial ingredients. And unlike other fresh dog food, Sundays doesn't require refrigeration or preparation because of their air drying process. So you can just scoop it and serve. I don't know about you, but my picky eater dog has to get a lot of his food from the vet and driving there and getting in line and getting parking is so annoying. But Sundays for Dogs ships right to your door. So I don't have to worry about any of that anymore. I'm so excited for Chips to try it. I can't even tell you. So if you and your dog want to come alongside me and Chips and get Sundays for Dogs, Go to sundaysfordogs.com to get 40% off your first order. That's sundaysfordogs.com slash politicsgirl or use the code politicsgirl at checkout for 40% off. Because I'm sure your dog is just as special to you as my dog is to me. And don't they deserve the very best? sundaysfordogs.com slash politicsgirl. The older I get, the more I find myself wanting to be more intentional about the way I live and the way I eat and the way I take care of my body. I feel like things are kind of falling apart a bit and the more I can do to keep my mind and body running smoothly, the better. I've talked to you about Mosh Bars before. Mosh is a company founded by Maria Shriver and her son Patrick Schwarzenegger with a simple mission, to create a conversation about brain health through food, education, and research. 
Mosh joined forces with the world's top scientists and functional nutritionists to make something beyond your average protein bar. Each Mosh bar is made with ingredients that support brain health, like lion's mane, collagen, and omega-3s. And with six delicious flavors, each bar also gives you 12 grams of protein. Plus, they have a line of plant-based protein bars, if that's how you eat. I personally love their lemon and white chocolate flavor. I just get boxes of that. And here's the best part. Mosh donates a portion of all proceeds from your order to fund gender-based brain health research through the women's Alzheimer's movement. Two-thirds of Alzheimer's patients are women, and Mosh is working closely to close that gap between men and women's health research. This is a personal mission for Maria. Her father suffered from Alzheimer's, and since then, she and Patrick have dedicated themselves to finding ways to help other families dealing with this debilitating disease. So if you want to find a way to give back to others and fuel your body and brain, Mosh bars are the perfect choice. Head to moshlife.com slash politicsgirl to save 20% off plus free shipping on your first six-count trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on your first six-count trial pack. M-O-S-H-L-I-F-E dot com slash politics girl. Do good, eat good. Did you know that Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers? Well, I happen to be one of those happy customers. I ordered an avocado and Meyer lemon tree last year from Fast Growing Trees. I can't tell you how easy this process was. Fast Growing Trees gives you customized recommendations based on your specific needs. So whether you're looking to add some privacy, some shade, or just add some natural beauty to your yard, Fast Growing Trees has in-house experts to help you make the right selection. They'll talk to you about your soil type, your landscape design, how you take care of your plants, everything you need. Plus, their plant experts are available to help keep your plants healthy through the season and beyond. I even called them when my trees arrived because I wasn't sure if I would keep them in their root basket or not. And a real person answered the phone and told me. Fast-growing trees are plant experts, and they curate thousands of easy-to-grow plants, shrubs, and trees for your particular climate and needs. They have citrus trees to evergreens and everything in between. Just order online, and your plants will be shipped directly to your door in one to two days. With fast-growing trees, you don't have to drive around to nurseries or big gardening centers. Everything is one stop. And right now, they have the best deals. Up to half off select plants, and our listeners get an additional 15% when they use the code POLITICSGIRL at checkout. That's an extra 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com if you use the code POLITICSGIRL. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code POLITICSGIRL. No green thumb required, which is good for someone like me. Fastgrowingtrees.com. The offer is valid for limited time. Tell them we sent you. You guys know that movie, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, and how when white people stop doing active anti-racism work, we become what you call sleeper agents for white supremacy. You know, for people who maybe are not as familiar with that that particular movie, um, there's a character named Bucky. Uh, he is the, the Winter Soldier. And he actually was Captain America's buddy way back in the day. Um, but something has happened where the villain has basically brainwashed Bucky. And so, you know, Bucky will be doing his thing and then the villain just has to say these like secret words and then he's activated and he'll go off and he'll assassinate like some innocent person or some political figure or something like that. Without awareness. Exactly. Without awareness, without even catching or knowing that it is happening. Um, and that's the same sort of energy that I see. Even, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of use some of the words that she used, even amongst, you know, liberal, progressive, 
people who are passionate about anti-racist white folks, um, even those people um, don't necessarily catch some of that programming that's kind of under the hood. Um, and I'll, I'll give another example if I, if I can do that, uh, even of myself, um, where this happens across identity categories. And so, you know, I can talk about oppression and marginalization as a black person. Um, but, you know, to your point, also, I am a man. And there is, you know, the way in terms of gender oppression goes, that don't impact me. Like, I don't, I don't experience gender oppression. Uh, you know, as a black man, that, that modifier does different things, but not, not just solely as a man. Um, and I can think about uh, a story, you know, from years ago where I was talking to a woman, just, you know, whatever random conversation. Um, I'm sitting in a chair, she's standing. And for God knows what reason, I, I just sort of say to her, I said like, oh, you're just gonna, gonna stand over me like that, huh? And we were like having a conversation and that came out of my mouth. Um, and without skipping a beat, she says to me, oh, you got a, you got a problem with the woman standing over you? <laughs> I was like, oh, no, ah, ooh, ah, ah. and I was just like, you know, stuck, um, and, you know, apologize, whatever. And then like after the fact, I'm like, why did I say that? Like, why did that come out of my mouth? Like, what is going on within me that would cause something like that to come out of my mouth? And it absolutely has to do with the patriarchal programming that I have received as a man in this society. And it's the same thing with race. There are certain lessons that white folks receive, whether it be directly, if you know, maybe their parents were a little bit more blatant, or just by living in this society. Um, and there's a class that I did where I was even asking this question to the group, you know, hey, what are some examples of harmful ways that white people are socialized? Um, and I got my cheat sheet because I wanted to just, I'll just read a handful of these, but people, this is what the room said, you know, uh, interracial marriage being bad, black folks being dangerous. Uh, you know, bad parts of town being where black and brown people live. Um, you should only live in white neighborhoods. Uh, you know, children, the idea that children can be too young to learn about racism, like all these sorts of different ideas that people have learned. And so we, it is impossible for us to not be impacted by these things. And we have to be, we gotta be courageous to face that stuff and to dig it out and to have that sort of sense of self reflection and to catch that stuff. Um, otherwise, we'll find ourselves in a situation where maybe, you know, a blacker indigenous or person of color maybe says something to us or calls us out on a thing or, you know, whatever the case is. Um, and then that that white supremacist programming that you didn't choose, right? Like, you know, white folks generally didn't choose that, but it's something that has just happened from, you know, whatever family background or society, et cetera, it just teaches these lessons that even when we consciously disagree with them, they still can influence our behaviors and our reactions. And so we've got to be willing to do that work. It's like, I've got to face that person inside of me that I feel a lot of shame and worry about. And I don't want anybody to ever characterize me as that person. Like I've got to come face to face with that person uh, to be able to dismantle that stuff so I can actually default to better ways of responding and reacting and being in these anti-racist conversations. Otherwise, we're going to yeah. be like Bucky. We're going to be those sleeper agents where we're activated and then we're causing harm, even in spaces where maybe we're actively trying to help or we're trying to you know, be a part of healing or anything like that. Right. 
I mean, you say it so well, like in, in our society, white people were socialized to see ourselves as the heroes, as the protagonist, as the good guy, you know? And most of us were taught either subconsciously or consciously that we're kind of the smartest and the most capable. We didn't mean to. It's what what we sort of been taught by looking around at who all the CEOs are, who all the presidents are, who all the exactly. people in charge are, right? Uh, yeah. That we somehow deserve these positions of power because we earned it by being, I don't know, better? But, you know, it's just that's the way the system was set up. So until we commit to doing what is obviously going to be lifelong work of owning and deconstructing this kind of racist programming that we've been raised in, we're just one perceived slight or correction away from kind of unleashing our latent racism onto the world. You know, like it's, it's, it's the sleeper. We get triggered all the time and we don't mean to, I don't think, but somebody says something and we feel personally affronted because we're trying to be good people in the world, but we were raised in a certain world. So if we're given boundaries, that offends us. If we're asked to be quiet or step aside, maybe we're told to follow instead of to lead. We struggle with that because it feels unnatural in which the society that we have been taught and grown up in and rooted in. And it's something we have to work on. But you point out that even as a teacher and a coach and a black man, right? Like you're here, you're like, I I have to do a lot of this work myself. I have a lot of my own internalized triggers and thoughts that you grew up with. And so I don't want white people to think it's just a white person problem or men to think this is just a men problem. It's something that we all have to be actively working on. And I think one of the things that we need to work on is, like you said, we need to come to this work for the right reasons. You know, you've been saying that a lot of people come to anti-racist work for the wrong reasons. And you have three really good reasons that people come to for the wrong reasons. Would you mind telling me what they are? Oh gosh, I got to try to remember my own stuff. I might, I, you might need to help. Okay. Your first one, stuff. your first <laughs> one is people come to the work because they want to be a good person. They want people yeah. to see them as a good person. Right. Yeah. And again, this goes back to that individualization, right? Like in that case, you're doing the work for yourself, right? You're thinking about yeah. you and not the people you should be thinking about. You're focusing on your intentions and not on the impact you should be having. The second one you say, and I'm taking this from your own work, I'm just repeating your work yeah. back to you at this point, is that you want to be seen as not racist, right? Like we yeah. want to be seen in society as not racist. But again, this is focusing on our own reputation, how people perceive us. And then that also starts to feel really personal because if it's if I if I'm working on my own reputation and how people see me, if someone corrects me while I'm thinking of myself, then I feel personally attacked as opposed to we're trying to fix a societal problem. And you're like, actually, yeah. you said that wrong. And I'm like, oh, I'm just here to help. Like, you know, like it, we get very <laughs> defensive. And then the yeah. third one is we want to be accepted, right? We want to be accepted by the black and indigenous and people of color communities. Because first of all, you guys are very cool and we're a little boring. I'm not going <laughs> to lie to you. I feel quite boring. But also this, you're saying with wanting to be accepted, we should want to do this work on its own. We should be doing it whether we're accepted by Black and Indigenous and people of color or if we're not. The journey is ours to take and the goal should be to make the world a better place and not to have a bunch of really cool people tell you you're invited to the cookout, right? Uh, because you did the work. Um, doing this work doesn't mean that everyone's going to accept you. It doesn't mean everyone's going to believe in you. It doesn't mean everyone's going to give you any credit. And it also doesn't mean that they're going to trust you, right? And sometimes 
that makes white people upset because when we get negative feedback, we kind of think we should be getting credit for even trying. Like, why are you criticizing me? I'm just trying to make the world a better place. Does that make sense to you that we're coming to it for the wrong reasons to be accepted, to be not racist, to be a good person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So gosh, there's something that's just so, it's been so fascinating and terrible just to see how this dialogue has transformed. This is my personal uh, perception um, or observation, um, especially after Trump, you know, became an official person and then, you know, elected, right? Um, The language that he uses is so blatantly awful. Like there's not this sort of hidden undercover dogmas and stuff. No, he's just blatantly terrible. Um, that has really shifted the bar of political conversations as well as like racial conversations. Like it has lowered that bar to the basement where, you know, there's all these people that are all about that blatant, terrible stuff. And I'm not that. So I'm doing pretty good. Um, as opposed to having a mentality of, you know, forget all of that. Like, what are we doing that is actively leading, again, to the impacts and the outcomes that we want to see of equity, right? Um, and this good person thing, you know, this idea that, hey, I do this because I want to be a good person. There's oftentimes a hidden mental shortcut that people don't realize is there that they're doing in their minds. So here, here's the mental shortcut. Let me break it down. Um, I am a good person. Racism is something that bad people do. So therefore, I can't have anything to do with racism. Uh, and then, you know, when they do have something to do with racism and, you you know, you try to actually have the courage to confront them about it, it is an assault on their entire sense of self, um, as opposed to like, hey, we want we want to be working together to actually see positive change through society. Um, but, you know, people then to kind of internalize it or personalize it about themselves, um, which then just is sort of a whole explosion, not in the direction that we want to take things in. This idea of not racist is actually kind of similar. Like, gosh, for for a lot of white folks, racist is their N-word. Like, it's the worst thing you could tell. Like, there was, it was so, this is fascinating stuff. Like, uh, I don't know if you remember this, there was this George W. Bush interview from years ago uh, after he was done being president. Um, And there was like a question to him about like, hey, what was like the worst part of your presidency? And his response was when Kanye West told him that, you know, said that he doesn't care about black people. Uh, and, you know, remember that George W. Bush was president during 9-11. <laughs> and then from his memory, Kanye West saying he doesn't care about black people was like a strong memory that he shared about one of the worst moments for him as president. Uh, so it's just so fascinating how this goes. And, you know, something that you were talking about, Ibram X. Kendi earlier, uh, one piece from his work that I really like is he really talks about this fallacy of not racists. Like not racist is not a, it's not a thing. Uh, because even if you are sort of passive and neutral, you know, we talked about the escalator, right? This thing is still happening. And so maybe it's not this active, you know, pushing, but there's still a, a, a complicit, you know, a complicit side to it, right? And so let's get off this idea of being not racist and let's actually look actively to make a change with this stuff, right? And I think that your summary when you're talking about this idea of getting, you know, getting props from black and indigenous people of color and uh, oh, that damn cookout. <laughs> like I all these sort of ideas. Yeah. Just make me cool enough. But, and that's the thing is that, like, uh, again, it's all sort of this inward type, this kind of inwardly focused type stuff. 
uh, where it's like the stakes are so high. Like this is literal life or death stuff. And so uh, there are some people who, you know, if they don't get the positive affirmations, they don't get the backpats, they don't get the cookies and the kudos uh, that will literally say, you know, whatever, I'm not gonna, even going to do this anymore. Like forget y'all, basically. Um, and it just shows such I a tried. lack of understanding. I tried. Right? Yeah, oh gosh, yeah. That, that like I tried. I guess I can't do anything right, so I'm I'm out. Um, and it just, you know really betrays a strong lack of the seriousness of this stuff, right? Like people are literally dying, um, both at literal you know gun violence and physical violence and that sort of stuff, uh, but also in so many other ways. You know, we look at you know homelessness and populations or racialized pieces of that. We look at uh, what's happening in the medical world. Um, yeah. There are, like, I want to say there's a, I think this is the same statistic or very close for black and indigenous women are like two and a half times as likely to die in childbirth as white women. Like there's just horrible, horrible stuff that, you know, we have to kind of like put on our, you know, our big kid draws. <laughs> we have to, you know, learn to take care of ourselves, right? Like, because sometimes that stuff hits on some really deep, pain points that we might have, you know, maybe our parents, and I, I, I say this with full sincerity because I'm doing my own child work too. And, you know, my wife and I, we're having frequent conversations about our child healing. Uh, but, you know, maybe your, you know, your dad or your mom, they never give you props for the stuff that you did. So, you know, as an adult who's trying to be anti-racist and you're not getting that feedback, you know, sometimes that can trigger that stuff from back in the day, right? Um, so that's part of why, it's insufficient for us to just get book smart about anti-racism. We can't just, just get book smart. Uh, it also can be a little dangerous if we're like, hey, I just, you know, let me just get out in the streets and start taking whatever the actions are. Like, we need to take actions. I cannot stress this enough. We need to take actions. But uh, it needs to be, I think, covered and included with this internal work. And so I see anti-racism as holistic. It's the mind. You know, we need to learn the things that we don't know. I mean, it's the body, like how are we using our power, our influence, our words, um, but also it's our hearts that we're figuring out our internal junk that, you know, it's, that's the worst case situation is I'm acting as someone who's actively trying to make a positive difference and their unhealed trauma causes them to actually contribute to the problem of marginalization rather than being able to help it, you know? And so that's just part of that work that we're doing that, um, I talk about like all the time because people don't catch it. And I don't think enough people are talking about that inner healing work that is a part of being an effective anti-racist. And an effective citizen, honestly, an effective yeah. person in society. Doing work on yourself, you know, uh, luckily mental health and uh, self-work is becoming more more popular these days. Um, we even have men's groups doing work now on themselves because men are so violent and keep lashing out at society and the women in their lives because they're unhappy yeah. themselves. So at least yeah. people are doing inner work themselves. But I think you're right when you say like what Ibram X. Kendi puts it is that we can't look at anti-racist as a descriptor. Like, don't say I'm anti-racist. Look at it as actions and ideas. It's not an identity for us to claim. It's behaviors for us to do. It's knowledge for us to gain. Uh, it's a change we want to make because, you know, just because you take actions that advance racial equality, it doesn't give you a pass to exhibit racist behaviors or excuse racist behaviors or beliefs. Anti-racism is all about 
actions that we take that lead to outcomes that we worked for. It's not just a name we get to call ourselves uh, because we agree with the ideals. And again, yeah. that seems to go back to not centering ourselves and individuation. Um, but before you go, I do want to center myself. Okay. Um, <laughs> I want to hey, do like a so, really this so annoying, lame. this like, I know, but this is so annoying. I want to do this really annoying white person thing and ask you a question because I know people are thinking it. And when you're a white person, trying to do the work, trying to listen and learn and not center yourself, what happens when you have a question? Because I get the feeling that white people are afraid to ask questions to people of color and the indigenous and black people at this point, because no one really cares that we're uncomfortable. You know, historically, we made everyone uncomfortable. But if you are looking to do anti-racist work, if you are hoping to be a better ally, you're going to have questions, right? And this yeah. response that was going around for a while, kind of like, why are you asking me? Are you asking me because I'm your only black friend? And the answer is, yes, that's exactly <laughs> why I'm asking you, right? Like, I want to know your thoughts and opinions because your experiences are more pertinent than mine here, right? Like, and I know you personally, so I trust what you say. Like, if I had a legal question, I would, and I had a lawyer friend, I would ask them. If I had an accounting question and I had an accounting friend, I would ask them. If I wanted to know how to shoot a better photograph, I would ask the friend that knows how to take the best pictures, right? So when it comes to racial issues, I'm going to turn to the person that I think will have more knowledge than I do. And I got the impression, especially during the height of the BLM movement and the kind of white fragility movement that was out there, it was like, don't talk to me. Don't treat me like your personal expert. Go look it up. Go do the work for yourself. But if we can't talk to the people we know, who do we talk to? Because I'm well aware that I'm ignorant in this department. But that block to answer white people's questions or shut a question down because we're it, it's like we're just admitting how ignorant we are, I think it only strengthens the roots of our own fragility. And I talk to white people now and they think the best way to be an ally is to say nothing. And while I do think it's essential to be able to listen and to be able to defer if we remove the ability to be curious, aren't we removing people's ability to be engaged? So I've got a, a and I hope I hope I don't forget some of these thoughts because I have a few a few responses to that. Um, like we can keep it real, right? We can keep it real, Nichelle. Please keep it real. Okay. Okay. Please. So I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start with something that might make people feel a kind of way, but is true. A lot of this is the first part. Uh, a lot of white folks are very generous with their uh, their naming of black friends. Um, a lot of white folks don't have black friends. Um, they may have black people they know uh, in terms of you know maybe my coworker or maybe this person I see on my commute every day or this person I see at the grocery store. Um, but there was a study done 2017, 14, one of those two years, like in the last 10-ish years, um, in the U.S. that show that 75% of white people in the U.S. have zero meaningful relationships with Black, Indigenous, or people of color. Um, and so can I, think, I ask you, is that not part of this systemic problem we're talking about? Like, absolutely. there weren't Black people within our groups. Like, it's not yeah. done deliberately. It's just that we did yeah, not grow sure. up. With, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, which is one of the reasons integration is so important. Yeah. And so I think one of the problems is that um, oftentimes this conversation sort of being brought up about a, a race related question 
is like maybe the first sort of initiation points of trying to have a conversation. Um, and if it's like, I don't really know you or shoot, maybe you've actually avoided me because you have the subconscious stuff when you see me and then suddenly you want to ask me a race question. I'm not going to yeah. respond very well to that. Right <laughs> now you need me to be um, your black expert. Like you barely talk to me, Becky. I get exactly. It. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that's, that's like the first part. Right. Um, Cause I think that when they are, when they actually are genuine relationships, that's a way different sort of conversation. Um, and I, I, you know, as a, a black person who has, you know, who's been in black community, um, you know, my clearly biased perspective, but I'm going to say that I think black people are among the most generous when it comes to teaching people, when it comes to patients and when it comes to all sorts of different things. Um, we just don't like that feeling of, you know, only being viewed as this racial expert person. Um, and a lot of people are not like me that have actively chosen to do that. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of black folks are just trying to live life and just trying to find happiness and pay the bills. Um, and that stuff is sort of thrust upon this, whether that be by, you know, sort of a colleague uh, or sometimes by our supervisors, like sometimes at the workplace, like, hey, we're going to do anti-racism stuff. You should be on the committee, you know. Yeah. No, we're not going to pay like, more. You're like, oh, really? You know, like, <laughs> Why? Like, but, you know, so that, that's kind of a thing, right? Um, so, you know, that is sort of a thing is I think when there is authentic relationship, not tokenizing relationship first, um, I think that definitely can shift the way that those conversations happen kind of more with, you know, interpersonal sort of stuff. Um, so that's the first part. Uh, second part, there are definitely just a number of us who are just out there who are actively like, hey, I am here to teach about this stuff, right? Um, and I think, you know, especially on social media, like that's one of the beautiful things about social media is the ability to have a conversation, right? And so, you know, there are going to be various people that have various boundary points. And, you know, I think it's important to respect boundaries as they're put out there. Um, but, you know, there are people who are actively putting themselves out there to like, hey, I want to help you. We're going to talk about this stuff. And, you know, people might have different focus areas. Um, but I think that can be great is to actively look for the people that are already out there, you know, read the stuff, you know, listen to the podcasts, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, and another thing, just sort of an additional piece that I'll put out there that I think is a really powerful sort of addition to all that stuff is I think it can be really great for intentional white community as well, like related to this stuff. Um, like I think, you know, there needs to be sort of a caution in terms of like the facilitation around that, um, because I think sometimes if there's not really good facilitation with boundaries, sometimes that can kind of spin in a, you know, a direction you don't want it to go into. Um, but also, um, like, for example, I in the past, I have co-facilitated like long sort of year long learning cohorts. Um, and it was myself. It was a, 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 a man of Mexican descent and it was a white one. Um, and we like co-facilitated this thing. And at the end of every session, we would have breakout groups. So uh, my, my friend Bernardo, the, the Mexican, Mexican-American man, he would take sort of a, this is just sort of the breakdown of the people we had in the room. So we had kind of a smattering of people of color. So he basically grabbed the group of them and they'd facilitate together. We sort of unintentionally had a solid group of black people. So I would grab the black folks. We would you know, have to do our thing. Um, and then Tammy is the name of the woman who would grab the white folks. And you know, like they would have specific conversation and she had the expertise to facilitate that stuff well. Um, so then they can talk about stuff that they probably 
either wouldn't say in the full group together in a space where like, oh, let's let's really kind of get into this stuff. Let's dig in, you know, let's kind of deal with this stuff. Um, slash uh, also maybe, you know, some of these questions that are really important that white folks need to be able to work through and ask and figure out can be done in such a way that's not causing harm to other people in the room. They're like, you know, the hell you mean by that? You know, when it's like a genuine sort of learning <laughs> thing, right? Uh, so, you know, I yeah. think that when those spaces, you know, they definitely exist, um, but again, they need really good facilitation, but I think that those are powerful spaces and those need to happen. And, you know, there needs to be sort of a growing comfort level with that stuff. Um, and then one more piece, I know I've been on this question a long time, but one more piece I wanna throw in as well is that uh, white folks, need to be intentional at increasing their tolerance for messing up and for making mistakes and for being embarrassed and for sometimes saying the wrong thing. And sometimes that, you know, that sort of backlash to quote unquote saying the wrong thing um, is received as like, whoa, that's the worst thing. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna like my world's gonna end. I'm gonna, you know, the sort of this, this the sort of the way they can be kind of mentally received. Even though a lot of times it's discomfort that doesn't lead to any sort of real sort of negative consequences, especially when the person is genuinely wanting to learn a thing and they're not just being hateful and horrible. Um, so I think that when, you know, when white folks can accept that that is a part of the learning journey is that well, you're, you're probably going to put your foot in your mouth sometimes and to just kind of be okay with that. And those are things that I've had to do on my journey of, you know, wanting to be a feminist that's something that i've had to do on my journey with looking to actively support lgbtq folks uh, but especially like with some of my my previous religious background that i've had to really deconstruct over the years but i learned a lot of terrible stuff about lgbtq folks um, that i had to deconstruct and then i had relationships and friendships that taught me even more um, and they started as friendships and relationships um, and then they were able to blossom into like, oh, hey, can I talk to you more about your journey and your experience yeah. as a queer person? Um, and we already had, you know, developed this trust. Yes. Now I can. Now that we have the relationship. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. It's what it goes back to what I was saying. If I had a legal question, I would ask a lawyer friend, but I wouldn't just randomly go up to a lawyer on the street and be like, here's my legal question, right? Like I have exactly. to have the relationship exactly. first. Yeah, so like, yeah, don't yeah. just go up to the black guy at your office and say, Hey, so what am I supposed to do about, and they're like, I don't know you. And I am, we don't have that relationship, you know, exactly. that start with relationship, build relationships with people first before you start turning them into your teacher or yeah. As you're saying, go to people that are actively out here saying, I'm willing to teach you. I'm willing to explain things to you. Uh, there are these podcasts. There are these courses. There are your courses that people can take. I think yeah. a fair amount of white people in modern America and probably in the world really do want to be better allies and really do want to be doing this anti-racist work in good faith. But I'm yeah. so glad that there's people like you out here helping us do that. And also with just such open-minded kindness. Now, you give a lot of information and perspectives in all of your courses. Tell people how they can follow your work and hopefully take one of your courses in the future, which, again, is not just for people that look like me, uh, but for anyone who was raised in a society that favored people who looked like me, yeah. which is, you know, honestly, most <laughs> I mean, of us. It just kind of that. is what it is, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yep. Um, and again, you know, just stuff that's sort of thrust upon us whether we want it or not. And then we've got to kind of do that unlearning work, right? Um, but yeah, thank you for that question. Yep, um, 
I am the most active on Instagram at Racial Equity Insights. Um, I'm also, I'd say, somewhat active on TikTok, and I think that'll be increasing, but TikTok is a very big platform for me as well. Um, my website is racialequityinsights.com. If you do racialequityinsights.com slash store, you'll find my e-courses. Um, and that's a, a library that will continue to grow. I'll continue to have all kinds of stuff available. Um, most of them are classes that are kind of at a similar price range, but I will have things that are bigger and I'll have things that are smaller for people that have a, a range of budgets. And then I just, I share free stuff all the time on those social media pages. So even for people that are like, I have no budget, but I want to figure out some stuff, I want to learn some things. I always strive to be practical. Like here is the applicable thing you can do that is connected to this thing that I'm sharing. Um, like I, I'm never, I'll say rarely, like occasionally I just want to teach you a thing just so you know what the thing means. But usually I'm saying, hey, here's how this connects into what you can be doing in your life to actively grow or to actively help with this stuff. That's wonderful. I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Tony. I mean, your work is amazing and it's obviously work we all desperately need. Thank you so much for having me, Lee. It's been an honor. So that was Tony Neighbors reminding us that anti-racist isn't an identity. It's actions. It's doing the work of deconstructing the systems of racism that we were all raised in and that harm every one of us. It's not about being a good person or not being called a racist. It's about genuinely interacting with the world to make it better. And yeah, we're going to make mistakes while we do it. We're going to blow it and we're going to get embarrassed, but that doesn't mean we should stop. Ultimately, it's not about us. It's about our society and living and growing in a place where diversity, equity, and inclusion aren't just a department, but a way of life. I want to thank Tony for joining us today and you for caring enough about the world to be here. Now go build a relationship with someone who is different than you. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.